Welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the everyday practice of oral surgery. The ultimate goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon could improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon himself or herself. The vast majority of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The techniques and methods discussed are only meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with personal research into the clinically reviewed and approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. I would like to welcome Dr. Billy Hole to the episode. He is a repeat customer. So happy to have him on. Just for those viewers who haven't heard our prior episodes, Dr. Hole is an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in the Indiana area, specifically known as... Go ahead. Mishawaka, South Bend. Go Irish. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Yeah, last time I was on here, man, Notre Dame had actually just beaten Clemson. So that was kind of a high point. I was in a good mood. And then I'm assuming your listeners probably are in touch with reality and know what's happened in the two games since. Yeah. So there's kind of been a dark funk over my entire life. Okay. Yeah, my city. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the buildings are crumbling. My wife left me, you know, I have dry sockets. Like every single patient comes back, tons of infections. I don't know. Implants are falling out left and right. It's just, it's horrible. Neuralgia. I got a lot of that. I got team J patients coming out the wazoo. So it's good to be back. I guess I'm assuming that Ed Ellis or maybe Rui were booked for tonight. So you had to bring me on for a redo. Yes, exactly. Happy to fill the gap. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Love to have you on because you're always such a enthusiastic, hilarious interviewer. So we had these two topics we want to kind of tackle, or maybe we could do one and then another, and we may or may not split them into two episodes. But hey, wait, wait, I do want one thing. Yes. So I actually, right before I got on with you, I listened to one of your old podcasts, and it's, okay. it has to do with oral surgery. So I'm not going completely off topic. But it was a podcast with David Solomon, and you guys were talking about the bite block. Yes. Okay. I just want to throw out because this is about you know little pearls that we do clinically, yeah. right? Okay. Go ahead. So I'm wondering if you or how many clinicians have ever tried to abandon the bite block and go with a molt mouth prop. I mean, I haven't routinely, but there's definitely a. Several, at least a few times a month where I do that and I, for a specific patient and we go with a molt, you know, what are those indications? Someone's not opening wide, maybe just the way they bite, the bite box slipping out. Yes. Um, I mean, there's a number of different things, but yeah, I think the molt works great as well. What's your experience? So I was hundred percent bite block, just like you. It's all we use in residency. And then when I went to Arizona, my partner was using a molt. So anyways, I was like, okay, I'll try a molt. And I'm a total, total convert now. I mean, I will do it anytime I can. The reason is in particular, well, I won't say always, but in particular for third molars, there's a couple reasons. One, there's so much more versatility in the patient's opening, right? So I personally love having more space to work with the coronary process out of my way if I have a high upper. Right. If I'm taking out one or 16 and that patient's not as open as much, 
I can really have them down almost edge to edge, like more than you can with drawing that bite block a little bit. So okay. I love the versatility of that. And then second, it's way easier. Like you do not have to take it out of the mouth to switch sides, right? Like if you have to switch sides of the mouth, you just close it, rotate it. It never goes between the teeth. So you never have an issue with people biting down or losing, losing the airway whatsoever. So I'm a total yeah. convert. So anybody who hasn't tried it, I would recommend trying it. You got to give it a little bit because that's a kind of a major change in how you do things, right? That's not something small. You're in the patient's mouth, but love it. And then you guys also mentioned the weeder, the sweetheart retractor. One more point on the molt. Do it. Which is something you didn't mention as well that I feel like is that there's more visibility with the molt, you know, it, because it's just touching those teeth and you can, it's almost like you had a bite block you could see through, yep. you know? Yep. And so I, I love that as well. There's just more you can see on that left, especially when you, if you're the type of person who doesn't move the bite block to inject, you inject around the bite block, which I do. Mm -hmm. The mole is great because you're like injecting, you can see everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I am a big fan total comp. I still use a bite block when I'm, I don't know, when one, I'm doing like a full mouth and, you know, and I've got uh, like one to one side of the mouth is edentulated. You know, I'll put a big, large adult bite block on that side and then do the rest of the mouth. But I'm a big Here's a question. Yeah. Do you get concerned ever? Have you had issues with, you know, the patient who's clenching and you stick the molt in and you just crank that mother? I mean, have you had any like muscle sprains, you know, stuff afterward where the patient's like, oh, now my TMJ is hurting because you cranked me open too far? I haven't had that. I can definitely see where you could, but I like that's the point of it is I like the versatility, right? So, I mean, if I want someone, if I want them wide, wide open, I can get them a lot wider open with a molt than I can. A bite block. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, if I feel like a patient's struggling in that regard and I don't need as much access, you know, I can go down a couple clicks. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I can be anywhere from like 10 millimeters in size of opening all the way to like 50 if I need to. Yeah. And then I like, I don't have to, I never have to take it out of the mouth, which I think is fantastic. Okay. Another question is, does it bother your assistant at all who's on that side because you got the molt kind of sticking out of the face like that? Is it ever an issue? No, they've never mentioned it to me. So my partner, TJ, he still uses the bite block and they've never mentioned that. You know, they do say they like because they can see better. The one issue with the molt is actually interesting is if the patient can open like 60 millimeters it's weird. The molt won't fit. It, it almost like falls out. It's this really weird thing. Whereas if they have too big of opening, I can't get good retention of the molt and I will throw a bite block in. It's pretty counterintuitive. I don't understand why, but I'll get a larger bite block and put in that patient. So for the most part, I think my assistants like it. Okay. That kind of makes sense though, because let's say you got a patient with a huge opening, you stick a bite block in there and you know, they can open and close and the bite block is still just kind of, even if it's loose, it's hanging in there. You say, okay, bite down and it's still there. If you're not biting on the mold, the minute you let up on it, then that, that sucker, because of the weight of the piece that's out of your mouth is going to fall out, right? Yeah. Let me also add, I only use the mold with my patients sedated. Like I think the mold's just a little cumbersome for patients awake. So I will use a bite block on a okay. patient or local, anybody asleep with like thirds and stuff. Once I, I will use the mold block up. Okay. And then what were you going to say about the weeder? So the also big sweetheart, you know, trained with sweetheart until I was a patient and I had a sweetheart in my mouth. Brutal, man. I mean, brutal. There's just no way it's going to happen from time to time when either the surgeon or the assistant is gouging that 
sweeter into the floor of the mouth or on the lingual crest. So I noticed, you know how thin that, that mucosa over the lingual crest is so thin, so friable at times. When yeah. I made a switch from not using the weeder, I still get them, but way less lingual bone exposure after third molars or, you know, second molar extractions. It just doesn't happen as much. I was, so I was a patient. I had actually had an impacted wisdom tooth. I had developed a dentigerous cyst, go figure. You know, I had a lingual bone exposure afterwards. And so I had some stuff done at a local. It was miserable. So what I've done actually, and it's really hard to describe it without a visual. So I take a four by four, right? Cause you got to have good retraction. You got to have that tongue out of the way. So that's yeah. what the weeder is awesome for. So I take a four by four, I unfold it and essentially turn it into a four by eight, right? And then yeah, I, okay. I just make like a complete throat pack, like throat screen and wrap one end under the tongue and the other end over it. And I basically, it, it's like a tongue blanket. It's like make yeah. a little burrito on the tongue. So the, everything is totally isolated. Nothing gets down the throat, no irrigation whatsoever. And it okay. just tucks. I'd have to send you a picture sometime, but Anyways, it's been great. I no longer use it, you know, unless I get someone that is just a massive, powerful tongue and I need it. Yeah. I would say 90% of my cases, I will not use a weeder. And I never use it on someone awake because it's brutal. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's the main issue that I have is you have the small mouth with the giant tongue mm -hmm. for those 17 and 32s and you got that tongue just enveloping the you know the site where you're trying to work and so i do a, like i roll these two four by fours up together almost like a you know u-shape and a similar thing i would wedge it down under the floor of the tongue between the tongue and the crest yeah. and that oftentimes itself does the job i don't need the weeder but there's those people who they're just super active tongue and it's getting away so it's either get your mirror out the cistern or the weeder or something because yeah. like can't get to it. I don't know. And what another great reason to have internal irrigation, because if your assistant doesn't have that second hand irrigating, you yep. know, they can help control that tongue a lot better. Right. Yeah. So anyways, I just listened to that and I figured I'd throw my worthless two cents in there. See, that's awesome. I love that comment. All right. So first we kind of, and we've talked about this a little bit with some other prior episodes, but I wanted to dedicate a little more time with dealing with the orthodontist you know it's an issue i i, mean, I know at least three or four episodes we, this has come up in various forms but i thought maybe let's hit all the orthodontist issues real quick so first is starting with the referral you know getting a referral from the orthodontist they learn different nomenclatures they learn you know different ways of numbering teeth and so sometimes their referrals aren't always clear. Sometimes it is clear, but you're not sure why, you know, why are they having me do this or, or why take out these primary teeth that they need, really need to come out at this stage. What are your thoughts on referrals and what are you kind of looking for as soon as you know it's an ortho referral? Well, first I want to know which orthodontist is coming from because yeah. every orthodontist is incredibly different. And we all know that the vast majority of them are incredibly picky and anal. Like when I go to a practice, the first people I visit when I started in Arizona, when I came here, I visited my orthodontist because I know they're the ones that are going to nitpick things and be upset over things. So I think first and foremost is like sitting down with each orthodontist. We don't have that many here. We were, it's pretty small community. We have like five orthodontists, Okay, but I've been able to sit down with them and ask them first right off the bat, Hey, what are your pet peeves? 
tell me when you've had experiences with oral surgeons in the past, what have been things that have left a bad taste in your mouth and where have been points of miscommunication? So that's like the first thing I've done. And thankfully, I feel like it's worked pretty well. I mean, there's hiccups for sure. But understanding what I think if you understand the orthodontist mind, which is a sick place, you're going to be better off. Yes. I like that point. You know, I think it's so true that, and it, probably like any, any oral surgeon or endodontist, you get these guys who they almost, most of them have a certain thing they're focusing on, or they've had a couple experiences, recurring experiences with the oral surgeon that they don't like. And it's in their mind that like oral surgeons don't do X, Y, and Z. I mean, just the other day, one of my girls was like, when you're removing third molar 17 and 32, could you please do a distal wedge so none of that tissue ends up overlapping the second molars after the healing stage? You know, so take the the wisdom tooth out and cut away the tissue so there's no overlap. You know, and those are the things where you kind of like raise an eyebrow, like, yeah, you you've uh, done surgery. (laughs) You're definitely cutting a lot of teeth out. You know what you're talking about. Dude, I had my first, when I came here, we had an orthodontist call me up like on the first case I was doing with him. And he like literally walked me through an E and B. And I was like, <laughs> hey, Dr. Blank. I was like, those are great points. And I consider that to be E and B 101. And I promise you, I will do my best. To yes. Follow your guidelines. Exactly. Totally. I mean, one of the most comical things, this is a side note is when the orthodontist is commenting to the patient about how the surgery is going to go. And, you know, they, they even sometimes describe the surgical technique to the patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the patient goes, oh, yeah, the orthodontist told me all about it. And they say what the orthodontist said. And you just, you can't help but smile. And yeah. you're like, sure, man, that's, what in the world? that's it. That's it. I got to read you one. Actually, I actually brought a referral from an orthodontist to read to you. Because yeah. this is the type of stuff that we have the privilege of dealing with. So this is from a really actually cool orthodontist around uh, here. But man, I'm telling you, like, talk about like the details. So here he is. He says, please perform an open exposure of impacted teeth 6 and 11. One, please do not cover with palatal tissue flap after exposure, i.e. definition of open exposure. Two, Please remove adequate bone in the direction the tooth needs to move and in the direction the tooth will, quote, fall into. Three, after exposure, use mirror and view as a crown prep to evaluate margins and path of draw, looking for bone that might interfere with path of eruption vertically into the palate. Four, okay to bond button on six and 11 to keep tissue off of tooth. Five, okay to tie loosely to expander on both sides. Six, Placement of surgical barrier after exposure is preferred for healing and to keep tissue off of crown. Wow. Yeah, that is, that, <laughs> you, should frame, you should frame that. That's a work of art. I'm telling you, it's, it's details, details. So, Did they include a YouTube video link? In- <laughs> yeah, there's a, it's animated drawings, you know, stick figures he put on, and it's pretty sweet. There's little blood drops and everything. <laughs> it's amazing. You gotta love it. Wow. Gotta love the ortho. So how do you deal with a referral like that? Oh gosh. I think as an you know, you just have to realize that, you know, they're very picky. There's a reason they got into the profession they did, right? I mean, really, he's a good guy. It's just he doesn't get surgery. Like how often do you get that orthodontist with you have a palatally impacted cuspid 
in a 32-year-old patient, the cusp tip is like almost eroding the lateral incisor root. And they think that you should be able to get the ortho button exactly on the facial of the cusp tip, you know, because they can't conceptualize surgery. It's just not possible. So I think you just have to take it all in stride, do the best. I mean, there's, where do they, if you don't put it exactly on that position they want, no one else is going to be able to. And, you know, they're going to get the tooth in there. I mean, clearly this guy with this referral is an over communicator, right? Uh, We we know that to start with. So at the very least, I think you can be grateful that he's communicating more and not less. Absolutely. And at the second, think, okay, this guy's probably wanting some type of reciprocation with good communication, right? Yes. Every time I see this dude's patient when I'm done with surgery, I send him a text, hey, saw so and so, things went great. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think for me, it's more of like, let's focus on the good stuff here. You know, this isn't about who's right or wrong or getting offended because some dude who doesn't even know how to give an injection is telling me how to do surgery. You know, this is more of like, hey, I can appreciate that this guy wants this done well. And at the same time, maybe, I mean, maybe he's a guy where you would call and say, hey, in this scenario, I totally get what you're coming from. But here's, you know, X, Y, and Z possible outcomes that may not be perfectly what you're thinking because this is a difficult case you know stuff like that has helped me sometimes especially when i get the orthodontist who's just like you have to do it exactly this way right like you're saying put the chain on distal buckle angle or else this is not going to work and i mean i'm not going to just shake my you know nod my head and go yes of course because i may not be able to do that so i got to tell her right i might not be able to do that will it work if i put it here or there. What if I can't get to that side of the tooth you want it on? I think it's all, like I said, it's all about communication with those guys. I mean, really in any yeah. of our relationships, but I think in particular mm-hmm. with a, with your yeah. orthodontist, they just, they required a little more TLC. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and we can philosophize on, you know, the orthodontist, the mindset, the generalizations. I mean, I think most orthodontists were probably at the top of their class or at least they think they were, they got in, you know, it's a, and maybe they think they're in the most desirable specialty and they're the cream of the crop. I don't I thought know. That's what we thought about ourselves. Isn't that oral surgery? You're describing <laughs> oral surgery right now, right? Man. Yeah. So maybe we can understand that because they're coming from a similar place, but yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to the various treatments that an orthodontist is going to request. We've got wisdom teeth, Third molar removal, we have uh, premolar removal, we have primary teeth removal, expose and bond. We have occasional uprighting, you know, removal of maybe the horizontal canine that's way the heck down there. With these different procedures, what are some, you know, things that you're looking for with in regards to an orthodontic referring them? Well, I want to know, do they pay cash or is it insurance? <laughs> no yeah i don't know i mean i think uh things i'm looking for obviously with third molars it's you know it's pretty simple but when it comes to premolars, obviously you want accuracy on bicuspids which ones we're taking out kind of one of my biggest fears is always are we taking out the right teeth the wrong teeth have they taken off brackets do they have expanders in place do they have any type of you know i've had some lingual expanders in 
in my way before for removing like uh, supernumerary teeth on lower premolars. So just, I always looked what type of appliances are in place. I think ENBs are really kind of one of the more complex ones that we get as far as treatment options. You know, I, in particular with uh, second molars, third molars, I get a lot of referrals for uprighting second molars when third molars are still in place. So, you know, communication with the patient, unfortunately with those, we do a lot of alternative treatment plans with the patients. Luckily, we have a really good relationship with our, a lot of our orthodontists. So if we alter treatment plans, we can communicate with our orthodontists and nine times out of 10, it's a, it's a go. And a quick question, the exposing bond. Let's talk about the patient who is older. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, past 25. They've got a horizontal or close to horizontally impacted 6 or 11, fully formed root. Mm-hmm. You, you can see the dilaceration in the x-ray on, on that yep. root. I mean, what kind of discussion are you having? What's taking place in the treatment? Well, I think if the, you know, one, if the orthodontist has sent them over, typically they've been doing it long enough, unless it's a new orthodontist, they're confident that they can bring tooth in. If they don't have 3D imaging and you see those dilacerations or something, you know, call the orthodontist and say, hey, this thing has a massive hook on it, unlikely to come out. Really, the biggest thing is I'm really upfront with my patients because, I mean, unfortunately, we do see those. You know, we have this one orthodontist in town that we do EMBs on like nine and 10 year olds, which may seem really early, but he can control the outcome. You know, I mean, and those teeth always come in exactly when he wants them. Perhaps we're intervening uh, prematurely and maybe these teeth would have come in without our help. Conversely, we do have an orthodontist that routinely thins people into their 20s. So with those patients, you know, I just, I'd let know this is going to be a probably lengthy process. You know, we're looking at least six months, maybe more than that. And I let them know the options are, you know, well, we are going to do an exposure and bonding. Dr. So-and-so has, does this all the time. He's very confident that he can get this tooth into the right position. But if not, we may be looking at a potential extraction, whether it's six months or 12 months down the road, whatever the orthodontist indicates. And then importantly, I think this is really important with all my patients that I do ENB on. It doesn't matter their age, but in particular, older patients with when the tooth has a long way to travel, I let them know all brackets come off. You know, brackets come off teeth all the time. If during the process, if the button comes off the tooth in the first six months, I will redo your surgery at no charge for you. But after six months, if that button comes off and I have to, if I have to rebond, I'm charging for the procedure. So I think that's a really important thing, setting those expectations in particular with more difficult exposure and bonding. Yeah, I like that a lot. Totally the same discussion that I have. I usually give a percent, you know, I say in these cases, like, hey, these procedures are 80% successful you know, that, that means 20% of the time, this isn't going to work, you know? And so if after six to nine months, this tooth isn't budging because it's a fully formed root and there's a hook on it, you know, it's very likely the orthodontist will send them back and we'll have to extract that and do an implant and, you know, and have that discussion. Like, are you okay with that option? Because I mean, it's fairly common. You you know, I feel like it's at least 20% of these people will come back with some you know, need to get either the tooth extracted or the reattachment of the chain, yeah. all that stuff. I think they got to understand time. I do. I literally, we had an assistant who is no longer with our practice, but she was having a canine Ian bead pulled in for six years. And oh she just, gosh. she just kept going with it. Like kept that's in, she was in wow. braces for 11. It's just crazy. Wow. So, I mean, I think those time those conversations are super important. Putting 
And you know, you always get the patient that says, oh yeah, doctor says this is going to take a few months or total braces. It's going to be 18 months. Mm, yeah, he's really good. He might, but don't be surprised if it's maybe a little longer than that. With your EMBs, tell me what type of goodies are you using for it? What type of traction pads? What type of equipment are you putting on there? Yeah, so we still do the gold chain. Basically, you know, we do etch, prime, bond, follow composite, stick it on, and then, you know, light. And then I basically take a flowable and put it all over the top of the bracket, the Uh gold bracket, and around the edges of the composite and then spilling on to some clean tooth surface. And, you know, then I'll usually take a wire cutter once it's all cured and I'm, you know, pull on and it's firm. Take a wire cutter, trim the chain, and then usually put a non-resorbable suture like a silk or something to connect it to the, the arch wire. That was one thing I think, and people do this with all different methods, but I think trimming the chain is super helpful. We never really did that in residency, at least I didn't, but I feel like you know trimming it to the degree and making sure that there's no way that chain is going to be slipping under the occlusal surface of a premolar or something and getting bitten yeah. down on one because it could cause the tooth to crack but two because that's usually what's gonna you know they're gonna bite on it and then within the first couple of weeks before they get to the orthodontist they're gonna rip that chain right off so i mean yeah that's kind of what i'm doing what tips do you have well do you use cautery at all for your EMBs? yeah I mean, oftentimes I do. And that's been like the biggest, so I didn't use cautery at all in residency. So a couple of things yeah. that I do that I absolutely love are like, say almost whether it's facial or palatal, but especially on palatal, I'll take a cotton roll. I'll cut it into like four equal pieces. And when I lay my flap, a flap's elevated. And then the base of my flap, I will stuff real, like pack that cotton roll little wedge, one or two of them and does two things. One, it helps with bleeding. And then two, it automatically kind of retracts the tissue. So I've got better visibility in there. And then the second thing is cautery. Like, I mean, my goodness, talk about a dry field. I never do an ENB without my cautery. So, you know, I'll go around the follicle. I remove one that I need to do all cauterized bleeders. And dude, knock on wood. I mean, I can't remember the last time I did not get a bond first try. It's been a long time with when you have good hemostasis with packing the site and then with cautery, it's awesome. So do the, let's say it's a, you know, mesoangulated, you can't totally impact it. Do you do the mid-crustal incision, reflect palatal pack, and then you take your cautery and kind of cut a window in your flap? Or do you start with the cautery from the beginning and just cut the hole right where you think it's going to be? No, no. Well, are you talking about if I'm doing an open exposure? Yeah. Well, luckily, I don't do a whole lot of open exposures. Most of mine are closed. If it's so, typically, if I do a closed exposure, I'll elevate my flap, pack the site with those cotton rolls, you know, get all the bone out of my way, and then I'll use my cautery to remove follicle and any type of bleeding around the tooth. Yeah. If I'm doing a open exposure, it kind of depends for me what things look like on the comb beam. Yeah. If the tooth is like there's barely any bone over and it's it you can almost fill a bulge, I will just remove directly the tissue without elevating a flap because it's right there. It's a slam dunk. Yeah, it's yeah. Less, trauma, less trauma tissue, no sutures, which I really love that. But if it's a little bit deeper, you know, and I want to be a little more precise, I will elevate flap, pack site, remove bone, kind of lie things down, cut that tissue out of the way, mm-hmm. bring that chain through. Okay. Got it. Yeah, that's a nice tip. I like that. Yeah, EMBs are uh, 
A lot of fun, man. Nothing better than a nice high palatal E&B, especially with your back. Dude, do you just, do you pass on those right now? What do you do? Oh, my back's good now. I think, you know, I'm fine. And I keep upright. I lean the patient back. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think the, it's like the exposing bond and, you know, the removal of the mesiodens, 58, 59. Yeah. Every surgeon kind of gets that feeling like in their gut, like, oh, great. Here we go again. Yep. You know, your head's cranked over, you're working in a small space, there's blood everywhere. So I think what you're saying, anything you can do to mitigate that and cotter is a great way, but positioning the patient really well and not having bad posture is so important in these cases. Yeah. If you have a facially positioned canine mm-hmm. maxillary and it's very, very, very superficial, are you using the same button in every case? It's very superficial. Like it's right under the mucosa. I mean, cause you know, if you elevate that mucosa, you can almost, there's just like a 10th of a millimeter bone covering that canine. On the labial. So, and are you elevating a flap and doing like a yeah. releasing where you kind of re-suture the flap up above? So I won't really do apically positioned flaps. Mm-hmm. So I will, t- I, on those, I almost always close it. Okay. I'm not a big apically reposition flap guy. Okay. The reason I ask is because I typically will use an eyelet profile. So I get mine through ortho traction pads. Yeah. Um, you know, it has a little eyelet on the back of the traction pad. So, you know, it's like sticks up a couple millimeters. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've noticed that if you put that traction pad on a facially positioned 6 or 11, and the mucosa is right there. Sometimes you'll get dehiscence of that mucosa if it's real thin because that eyelet is protruding. So I, I use an alternate one that's actually like a low profile and it is almost flush with the traction pad itself. So it really doesn't push on the tissue. And I get I have less problems with that soft tissue dehissing. I didn't even really know about it because you know I don't see my patients a whole lot after EMB. But in Arizona, one of my I had a good buddy that was an orthodontist and he said he put me onto it because he had previously seen that in his patients where the tissue is dehissing because the eyelet on the traction pad was putting pressure on the soft tissue. Okay. I mean, see, I, I really try to do an open exposure whenever I can. And so I am, I do sometimes do apically positioned flaps, you know, if it's close there, of course, we're trying to really maintain keratinized tissue, but even just not doing releasing incisions, but lifting the flap up and kind of putting the button or the bracket there and letting that tissue kind of fall on top of the bracket, but still having it being open kind of a thing. I would always prefer that than having the mucosa over the top of the bracket or the button. What if it's real, real high? I mean, what if it's deep in the vestibule? Are you still doing, I mean, are you bringing, so are you bringing the chain through the mucosa or through your incision line at the crest? Yeah, if it's real, real high, then for sure, yeah, I'm doing the closed technique and bringing it through the incision. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to make a hole through the unattached tissue on the labial. Yeah. But on the palatal, you know, I mean, yeah, I would try to pull it through a hole in the, the flap and if that's conducive, I think. Anything so that there's a, the least amount of mucosa overlapping the chain because I feel like that just makes things more likely to cause it to fall off, to not move, to disrupt the, I don't know, make it more difficult for the orthodontist to trim it. Mm-hmm. Not sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Definitely. Anyway. Okay. What about real quick on the uprighting? You know, you have the second molar that's along with the third molar and they're both mesioangulated. Yeah. You know, and you get the orthodontist saying extract 17 and upright 18. And 18 is like almost horizontal, like a flipping T wedged (laughs) into the back of 19. Yeah. Hey, how about when you get that request post-ortho? That's the best. Hey, I'm done with ortho. Do you think you could just, this tooth that's sideways, can you pop it up into a perfect position? (laughs) I have been braces for three years, but I never really thought about that tooth because I typically only treat to first molar. Right. No, that's quite the conundrum and it can be a lengthy conversation. So I do think one, it depends on patient age, right? Tooth development and where they're at in ortho. If I get someone post-ortho, And if they have an impacted second and third molar, you know, I have that conversation and I say, look, there's a couple things we can do. You know, if it's positioned kind of mesioangular and it doesn't have big old nasty roots, you know, perhaps I can surgically reposition that tooth. I always take out the third molar, obviously. But then I also will tell them, so I use a TAD and have you ever used a TAD to upright your second molars? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll use a Unitech TAD, like an eight or a 10 millimeter, take out the third molar I'll put the TAD kind of superior in the ramus to the where the third molar site was. And then I'll use an ortho traction pad. I'll take the chain off the traction pad. I'll only leave the eyelet on the traction pad. And then I get these tension springs that actually have a little notch that will fit over the head, over the TAD. I tie that to my traction pad, bond the traction pad to the second molar, and then stretch my spring and hook the notch over my tad. But I always let them know, I'm like, listen, this is going to get the tooth up, but you're going to need probably some orthodontic straightening. There's no way this can be a perfect position. So then I go down the final thing with that conversation and I say, okay, how are you chewing right now? I'm chewing pretty good. Do you have any trouble eating steak? No. I say, well, the, uh, the final option is we remove the second molar. You know, if we remove that tooth, you know, I hate move, taking out teeth that are perfectly healthy, but you've never used it before. And if you're not willing to go through ortho yep. process of upgrading this, it's a legitimate option just taking out the second molar. Yeah. Okay. A good point with the tags. There's definitely ways to do it. I mean, I personally wouldn't, I don't do a tad in a spring unless they have the braces on. It, it almost makes no sense. That is, for me, is kind of a requirement. But I, I do, I feel like there's certain orthodontic programs, I think, that are maybe, and I think they're older guys that are teaching residents or maybe younger guys, who knows, hey, you know, it's always worth trying to upright a second molar. So just tell the surgeon to give it a shot. And I haven't had really many great, you know, results with that. And we tried doing stuff like that, you know, even transplanting teeth is kind of a similar thing that we did in residency, but it's really rare I do that anymore. I think for me, it's the discussion of, you know, trying to elevate and luxate a tooth like that could potentially cause more harm to the tooth than good, you know. So I'm thinking either we upright it with a TAD or they'd use a chain or have the orthodontist just do it with what they can do. And if they can't do it, then really, you know, we've got to talk about leaving it versus if it's partially exposed, removing it. I mean, and I think most patients, if it's totally horizontal or or really close to it and really socked in under that first molar, I mean, you and I both know that tooth is not going to be uprighted. It's just... No. Well, and the other problem is, is in reality, most of those patients, they have this problem because they have lack of space, right? They got the 
there's just not enough room. So let's say we are able to upright that second molar. Most likely they're going to get recurrent pericoronitis because yeah. you're going to have an operculum over that thing. So yeah, I mean, one, they've got to be embraces. It's way more predictable when they're younger. So I am not opposed to taking out impacted second molars. And when you have that, I've rarely had patients and their parents when they've been through ortho for three years already. And you're talking, Hey, we're going to, you're going to have to get braces on again. I can't remember the last time they said, Hey, yeah, let's go that route. Same here. Totally agree. So, okay. I think these are all really good points at the orthodontist. We've talked about premolars on multiple episodes, you know, in regards to things to be careful for, because yeah. it's always scary when you get the take out these premolars <laughs> and there's no brackets on the teeth. Yep. And they have, you know, take out UR4 and UR6 oh and you're just like, okay. Someone is basically booby trapping the patient trying to get me in trouble right now. You know, it is, dude, I never look at a referral. Like I'll be in surgery and I'm looking at like, we put our referrals like on a board in the surgical room and I'm just like looking at it eight times during the surgery. Yeah. I'm, counting. I'm like on the one, two, three, four. Yes. Yes. That's the one. <laughs> hey, look at your assistance. Is this the one? <laughs> okay. I'm taking it out now. <laughs> wait, wait, put it back. Put it back. <laughs> Let's do a countdown. Three, two, one. Yeah, it's terrifying. It really is. It's so fun. It's a stinking premolar. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, we've hashed that out, but it's one of those things where your, you know, antenna's got to be up and you got to cross every T, dot the I's, because that's where you could get potentially taken out a wrong tooth, which you don't want to do. I think if you don't mind, it would be good to meet up again and do our mean tweet discussion. Okay, good. I like it. My kids are having a nuclear meltdown right now, so I need to go help out with that. Okay, good. Yeah, I can hear there's an uprising in the studio. <laughs> home. Someone probably just extracted a wrong premolar on a baby somewhere. Anyway, bye, right, brother. Let's try it again maybe next Sunday, but I really appreciate it. These little pearls, I think, you know, they sound just super simple, but... Some of the things you're saying, like little minor things can make such a big difference. And it's so helpful to hear people talk about stuff like this. Yeah, I've used a couple from your podcast here and there. May like it, may not. But I'm always of the mindset that as soon as we stop trying new things and we're just, we might as well hang it up, you know, because there's always better ways to do it. I agree. Cool. Thanks, brother. All right, man. Have a good one. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeons Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or feel free to text me or call me at 720-775-5843. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or any feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, I would love for you to call or email me. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.